Politico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Later in the program, we will listen to part four by environmental correspondent Zero Rose as he speaks with a homesteader and sustainability educator from Spencer, Indiana, about her life journey in academia and as a nature lover from a young age. And now for your environmental reports. Inside Climate Change reports that in an unprecedented step to preserve and maintain the most carbon-rich elements of U.S. forests in an era of climate change, President Joe Biden's administration recently proposed to end commercially driven logging of old-growth trees in national forests. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, who oversees the U.S. Forest Service, issued a notice of intent to amend the land management plans of all 128 national forests to prioritize old growth conservation and recognize the oldest tree's unique role in carbon storage. It would be the first nationwide amendment to forest plans in the 118-year history of the Forest Service, where local rangers typically have the final word on how to balance forest role in watershed, wildlife, and recreation with the agency's mandate to maintain a sustained yield of timber. National and local environmental advocates have been urging the Biden administration to adopt a new policy emphasizing preservation in national forests, treating them as a strategic reserve of carbon. Although they praised the old growth proposal as a as an historic step, they went to see protection extended to mature forests, those dominated by trees roughly 80 to 150 years old, which are a far, far larger proportion of the national forest. As, an old, as old growth trees are lost, which can happen rapidly due to megafires and other assaults, they argued that the Forest Service should be ensuring there are fully developed trees on the landscape to take their place. The National Climate Assessment released by the administration this fall included data data underscoring the urgency of the issue. The amount of carbon sequestered by U.S. forest land decreased by 22% from 1990 to 2019 due to a combination of drought, wildfire, and disturbances by insects and disease. In webcast presentations this fall on its work to update agency policy, The Forest Service showed that the amount of mature and old-growth forests in national forests exposed to temperatures in excess of 90 degrees for more than two months a year has doubled compared to the last three decades of the last century. 
If global carbon emissions continue on a high trajectory, exposure to such extreme temperatures is on track to double again by mid-century and double again by the end of the 21st century. This will raise the destructiveness of fires. Of Indiana's original 20 million acres of forest, fewer than 2,000 acres of old-growth forests remain intact. Most of the sites that remain are now protected as nature preserves, and many have been selected as national natural landmarks. The government has shown little interest in preserving even this small amount of old-growth forest. The states that rely on the Colorado River, which is shrinking because of climate change and overuse, are rushing to agree on a long-term deal to share the dwindling resource by the end of the year. They worry that a change in administrations after the election could set back talks. The story appeared in the New York Times. Negotiators are seeking an agreement that would prepare for extraordinary cuts in the amount of river water that can be tapped. The Colorado provides drinking water to 40 million people in seven states, 30 tribes, and Mexico, as well as irrigation for some of America's most productive farmland. But the amount of water flowing in the Colorado has declined over time as rising temperatures reduce the snowpack that feeds the river. The rules that govern the distribution of Colorado River water expire at the end of 2026. Negotiators are trying to reach a deal quickly in case the White House changes hands. It's not the prospect of a, of a Republican administration that is particularly concerning, negotiators said, but rather a change in personnel and the time required to build new relationships between state and federal officials. The Colorado River hit a crisis a year and a half ago when dangerously low water levels threatened the water supply for California, Arizona, and Nevada, prompting the Biden administration to seek an agreement among states on deep cuts. That crisis receded after last year's unusually wet winter, which temporarily reduced pressure on the river. In May, California, Arizona, and Nevada agreed to more modest redu reductions than what the government had initially sought. But those negotiations were a precursor to a much harder challenge. Whatever agreement replaces the current rules will require far deeper reductions than in the past. John Kerry, President Biden's special envoy for climate, plans to step down by spring, ending a three-year run in a major diplomatic role that was created especially for him and which will face an uncertain future with his departure. Mr. Kerry, age 80, has served as the president's top diplomat on climate change since early 2021, working to cajole governments around the world to aggressively cut their planet-warming greenhouse gas emissions. He led the U.S. negotiating team through three United Nations climate summits, reasserting American leadership after the country withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement during the Trump administration. Mr. Kerry championed cooperation on global warming between the United States and China, the world's two largest polluters during times of tension. The bottom line concerning his leadership is that little, has ac little was accomplished. His persuasion was too gentle. He failed to communicate the urgency required to make progress. He does not seem to recognize how quickly we are reaching a point where a couple billion people will be facing calamity. And now, part four of a conversation between Zero Rose and Aaliyah Kuthin, 
a sustainability educator and homesteader from Owen County about her formative years, education, and passion for environment and social justice. There's all these jobs that are created that are just kinds of busy work that aren't really essential to, you know, the whole system. And meanwhile, all of these certain tasks are neglected because how are we going to profit out of making that into a job when it should just be a job? I mean, you had this with like the Civilian Conservation Corps that Roosevelt created in the Depression. Like these people need some jobs. We're going to build some trails up into the, the you know, the the lands that we're preserving. And, you know, if industry doesn't do it, the government has to do it. If you don't want the government to do it, well, do it, industry. You know, and you get into these dichotomies, you know, oh, it's all a hoax, or, oh, these 15-minute cities, it's just a means of oppression. You'll own nothing and like it. And there is a whole corrupt, uh, you know, cadre, cabal, on top of these international things that doesn't have the best interests. But see, there was a point which everybody said, these sustainability things, these environmental things, aren't feasible. You have to find a way to make it profitable. You have to find a way. Well, industry finally figured out how to make these things profitable. And guess what? They're squeezing this on all of it. Instead of kicking it in in a way that we're sustained. And it's all about creating these excesses. No. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. They're, they're, they're doing things supposedly in the name of the environment, but they're really just capturing market share and not really building that local resilience, that self-sufficiency, because that's anathema to a system where we got to have everything running through our pipe so we can get a piece of it. If you don't have to buy this and or that, and, you know, if you're generating electricity at your local spot, you know, you could have everybody that walks in a door at the grocery store spin this wheel like this prayer wheel, like they have the Tibetan prayer wheels. Even if that's just a watt or two, Everybody, all the hundreds of people going in and out, they have places where the floor going up and down, like a disco and dance floors and stuff, that can generate electricity up and down. You can get anything spinning like that. There's all this ambient energy going around. Something like a merry-go-round that kids are playing on could be a generator. Bobby door. Yeah. You know, so many different little ways you can generate electricity. Think of, think of New York City or Chicago, a, a federal building. How many times that revolving door goes around in an hour, <laughs> in, an, in a minute? How many people go in and out of that same revolving door every minute of every day, Monday through Friday? You could probably run every, every light in the office building. <laughs> you know? It's not a huge drive. It's not real. Yeah, high. even even if it's just this or that small thing, that adds up across a system of something you don't need to generate somewhere else. Like you using your water the way you are. The water has to be pumped with electricity, too. You're not just saving water, you're saving electricity. And it's not like we don't have the technology. I mean, when I was going to the School of Mines, I I was a member of a camp team, Center for Advanced Materials Processing team, you know, and we had like a little, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Not tests, what am I thinking of? Um, competitions with other schools and, and groups of schools uh, in robotics and other things. Well, one of the camp teams was a, a concrete canoe, okay? Another one was a hydrogen car. And this was back in 2007. 
no, before that, 2005, they had a hydrogen car project. They were trying to make it feasible at the School of Mines in South Dakota in 2006 and five. you know? Um, I was doing work with unmanned aerial vehicles. You know what you could do? With, you could do a lot of more positive things with an unmanned aerial vehicle than what they're doing right now. What they're doing right now is they weaponized it. That's why I got disillusioned. I could see it. I, I saw what was happening. It was going in that direction. Department of Defense was interested. I was like, okay, great. That's fine. You know, have at it. But <laughs> if that's all you're going to do with it, with that technology, you know, get real. Do something positive with that too. Don't hog it all for war. Don't hog it all for, for destruction. Use it for something actually good, you know, where you're actually going to do something that's benefiting society and not destroying something. Well, the thing is now with the way they're doing the transition is, is, uh, you know, the idea that you're going to tax the carbon and stuff and okay, that's, you feel the pinch of that and that enforces a certain frugality, but that's going to be another major reason that people are going to reject this stuff. People are already squeezed. We've already got all this inflation. And if you make everything more expensive because you're charging for the fossil fuels and stuff, but the renewables have come down to where they're finally cheaper. They used to say, oh, this stuff isn't feasible. Oh, it's 20 years off. And then another 20 years and another 20 years. Well, now the renewables are less per watt than the standard system of things. And what you have right now is the last throes, death throes of the dinosaur of the big system. And so Joe Biden has pumped more oil now than Trump. He's broken all the records. So all of these greenhouse gas reductions with the Inflation Reduction Act have are twice over negated by all the oil leases and, and flowing. It's not like we're ever going to entirely, truly, totally get rid of the oil. There's going to be certain essential systems and you do sometimes have to, you know, you're not going to abolish the military. You're going to need to run big machines and things. But that's what it should be reserved for, not making plastic doohickeys for the dollar store. Exactly. Yeah. Not not producing more oil so that you have the more plastics so that we have, you know, can do more fracking. <laughs> no. Um you know, if you're going to use a, an unmanned aerial vehicle for something, use it to sweep for mines in some of these minefields that, that have been left behind by all these endless wars everywhere across the freaking planet. You know, you've got, you've got the technology. We have so much great technology. <laughs> we've got to start learning how to channel it better. Uh, <laughs> we've got to grow a conscience. That's what we've got to do, you know? Not wait for somebody else to do it. Uh, right now, I'm working on a, a couple of wind towers at my house. I got one, uh, a two vertical helix wind towers, and I'm trying to figure out a way to maximize how much energy they'll produce. I haven't done that yet. I got sidetracked with a, a remodeling project on this on the house, but um, next spring when it warms up a little bit. I'm going to get back outside. I've got most of the materials I need, but there might be some other equipment I need to get to to work on that maximization part. And I've been getting online with uh, some electrical engineers and, and uh, electricians on Quora. Quora.com is a you know um, online 
question. You can ask people questions on it. I'm trying to use Quora in a, in a positive way to um, to build up my own knowledge um, of, of electric electricity and and uh, how to build alternative means of energy for my own property. You know. In Owen County right now, if you put up a wind tower or you put up a, a solar panel, you get a tax break on your property taxes. I don't know what it's like in Monroe County, but this can't be isolated to Owen County. I'm sure it's something that is a thing all over the country. That If you put up alternative energy on your property that you own, you'd get a tax break. And why not? You know, it makes sense, right? And it's something any landlord can do. It's something any building owner, any business owner can do that has a, has their own building. There's no reason why you can't invest in something like that. It's called investing in something that is good. You know, forget the stock market. I mean, no, I'm not saying don't do that, but I don't want to see that fail. I want to see it, you know, thrive. But I'd like to see those stocks be for green stocks. I'd like to see more green investments, you know. There's a few and far between. And the ones that advertise as green really are. They're greenwashing. Oh, yeah, they got that going on, but they're not really green and they're not sustainable. You've, you've got to really pick and choose and decipher what is and what isn't a sustainable thing to invest in. It's better to just, that's why I'm just investing in my own place right now. I want to show other people it can be done, like you were saying uh, earlier when we were talking off off uh, the record. Um, be the example. That's why I'm homesteading. That's why I'm homesteading in my county, in Owen County, where I'm from, where my father's family is from, you know, the, the Beam family. <laughs> Uh, beam house on the hill that was my great grand great great grandfather that built that i came back there because one i love the trees I miss my trees out in south dakota where it's you know a lot of bad lands a lot of you know small trees except for the cottonwood that blows cottonwood everywhere <laughs> but i miss my maple trees i miss my beautiful huge pretty poplar trees you know tulip poplars and, and oak trees that are towering you know, uh, not the, not the scrub oak, what they call scrub oak and gamble oak in South in uh, Arizona. They're little, you know, they're little bitty trees. They're great. They're wonderful to have. I mean, in a dry climate, my gosh, you know, you get under the trees, it's cooler, it's nice, and you, you've got water sheds there too, you know. But here, this was home. Grow where you're planted. I always heard that, you know. That meant something to me. Grow where you're planted. It's like, hmm. Wherever, you, wherever I am, I want to be able to grow. But this is where I was born. You know, this is the area I came from. This is where my family's from. And I kind of want to give back something to that area. You know, maybe that's a pipe dream. I don't know. But it feels right. It feels like the right thing to do now. And, and so I'm exploring uh, different ways of homesteading in a more... Uh, viable way, scientifically, technologically viable, um, you know, energy-wise, uh, ecologically viable, you know, environmentally. I'm studying the native plants, trying to propagate native plant species and promote their growth and, and, and soil 
uh, mitigation, you know, uh, or not uh, soil mitigation, so, soil growth, soil health, erosion mitigation, and and to preserve what's there and regenerate what isn't that used to be or could be. There, there's a lot of farms out in Owen County and Clay County. Uh, a lot of people use pesticides and herbicides, you know, growth inhibitors that are just killing off our pollinators and causing cancer. You know how many farmers? Uh, last summer I was working on a farm, and the farmer there doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, goes to church, doesn't cuss, you know, he's got throat cancer. You know why? He's breathing those fumes. I, I was working on the property doing some construction work with a friend, and um, every time I'd go up to the barn where he keeps the chemicals that he sprays on the crops, I couldn't breathe. The toxicity was so strong. I could, you know, acidic, nasty, acrid smell. I, you know, I thought, man, he's breathing that every day, every season, every year, you know, as every summer. And he's surrounded by it outdoors, spraying it on his crops. It's no wonder. No wonder he's sick. I felt so horrible, you know. These are people that depend on that, that living to survive and the government's telling them to do it this way and you know these big companies are telling them to do it that way and and you know you got your farm bureaus and your co-ops and your uh, even even your little 4-H groups all banking on this to work for them and because the government's telling them this is the way to do it these ag companies are telling them this is the right way and this has been going on for decades. They're using Agent Orange to kill people. I mean, you know, it's sad. It really is. And we've got to we've got to backtrack. We've got to erase that, <laughs> delete, <laughs> start over. <laughs> well, and that's a that's a good way, I think, a good term to wrap it up on. <laughs> that uh, you know, you have to acknowledge these stark realities and then create these positive solutions this is in nature the chickadee is a common bird wintering in our woods parks and gardens its many adaptations allow it to survive our cold winters chickadees tufted titmice and nuthatches gather together to look for food and roost together to stay warm they will also mob gathering together to attack a much larger bird thus chasing an enemy from their premises feathers are wonderful insulators and additional feathers are added during their winter molt when the birds preen, the oil spread on their feathers protects them from getting wet and chilly. Chickadees will use conifer trees and old nests as winter roosts, so leave old nests in your garden. They eat insect eggs and hibernating insects, including the larva of the goldenrod gall fly, which they easily extricate from the gall. They will eat the seeds and feeders, and also those on plants left in gardens. However, the most important need for this bird and others in the winter is water. A heated bird bath would be welcomed. They forage all day in order to have the energy to last the night. During extremely cold winter nights, they can lower their body temperature up to 15 degrees. In this way, they can save energy by burning fewer calories. You've been listening to In Nature. For Eco Report, I am Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. 
Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn some Indiana history during the Village History Hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, January 27th from 1 to 1.30 p.m. Meet at the Village Ordinary Concession Stand and take a leisurely stroll with Tony to hear about the Village's past. The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February the 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, January 31st at 8 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the resident birds, including the endangered whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. Eagles Over Monroe is an annual event that celebrates Monroe Lake's unique history with the bald eagle. The event begins on Thursday, February 1st and runs through Sunday, February 4th with special activities planned for each day. Go to bit.ly slash eom2024 to get this full schedule. There will be an owl prowl at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Friday, February the 2nd from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Meet at the Visitor Center to learn all about owls. Then you will head outside to get a look at some of the resident short-eared owls. Dress for the weather. Brown County State Park continues their winter hike series with the Lake That Never Was hike on Saturday, February 3rd from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Hike to the Taylor Hollow Lake to see the third lake in Brown Brown County that was started and never completed. This is a 2.5 mile rugged hike. Wear waterproof shoes and dress for the weather. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Kate Young. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by the Eco Report team. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Kate Young and Noel Husky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. Thank you so much for listening.